Elaine and I both are excited about being here. My wife, Elaine, sitting in the back there. Uh, I can't tell you how exciting this is just to be with you guys, to worship this morning. Thank you, Dave and Blair, for leading us so well. And uh, 16 years ago, a group of people called Grace Community Church met in this room, this building. This is where we were worshiping. I'm, I'm looking around, and I know, let's see, Dave and Julie were here, Julie Hunt, and uh, Haymakers, Carrie and Marilyn, Eric, and I don't know if there's somebody else. I may be, there we go, <laughs> the Murdochs. We were here worshiping, and this was, and what's interesting, I was, I was telling uh, somebody this morning that it was during the, I guess Carrie and I were talking about this, while we were here, we had been established for about, uh, I guess two and a half years when we moved over here and we met here and I remember it was when we were in this building we began looking for land or a building because our desire was to be in this geographic location and we searched and I'm a real estate guy so it was very embarrassing for me I could not find us a place could not find a permanent home a building land I mean we looked everywhere and so in God's providence Long story short, now Grace Community Church is on the corner of Old Hickory Boulevard and Granny White. But for me to be here this morning and to see this church worshiping in this place, it just blows my mind. God is so good, so redeeming that, that he's doing his work. He continues it through Trinity Church, and we love you guys, and we pray for you. And uh, the greatest gifts that are sustaining throughout all the years that started when we were meeting here 16 years ago are the lives that have been changed that we can look at and see. And I praise God for that. So thank you for letting us worship with you this morning. Um, Ten years ago, Andy Andrews wrote a book entitled The Traveler's Gift. In the book, the main character is a desperate man who's lost his job. He's run out of options for taking care of his family. And through the vehicle of time travel, Andrews carries his character to seven different moments in history where he encounters seven famous people. In each counter, in the conversation that follows, Andrews' character is able to draw out a valuable lesson from each historical figure. And I don't know about you, but the idea of going back in time and discovering that priceless pearl of wisdom that can be gained from great historical figures is very intriguing to me. And as I was thinking about that, I was just imagining if we were able to go back in time to the days when Jesus, the man Jesus, walked the face of this earth, what kind of questions we might ask him? What lessons would we want to learn from him? Well, the truth is there were actually 12 men who spent a great deal of time with Jesus during the last three years of his life on this earth. And while the scriptures record many, many questions that they ask Jesus, I find it fascinating that there's only one time recorded where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something, something very specific. In Luke 11, the scriptures reveal to us that the disciples... After Jesus finished praying, they came to him and asked him, asked him to teach them how to pray. 
on first glance, they might not seem to be that significant. But I want you to remember, these are the men who spent more time with Jesus than anyone else. They had front row seats to all the action, all the miracles, all the teaching that Jesus was doing. And out of all the things that they were able to see Jesus do, the one request they made of him was to teach them how to pray. Not how to perform miracles. Not how to raise people from the dead. Not how to teach people, how to, how to teach them how to use parables when they taught. Or not how to heal the sick or cast out the demons. They asked him to teach them how to pray. Now, why would they do that? What is it about prayer that created so much curiosity, so much desire on the part of the disciples? Jesus was a man of prayer. No doubt they had observed a quality and a depth in his relationship with God that seemed to emanate from his prayer life. The disciples saw that prayer was vital to all that Jesus was and all that he was doing. It was core to, to his, all of his activity. And in Luke, we see an amazing pattern of prayer in the life of Jesus. And so as we look at it, keep in mind the disciples were there. They were experiencing. They were seeing Jesus. And just to, to hit a few examples, in Luke 3.21, when, when Jesus was at his baptism, the, the word says that he prayed. And when he was praying, heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then when he was getting ready to launch his public ministry, Luke 4 tells us that he went and fasted and prayed for 40 days. But prayer wasn't just something that Jesus did on special occasions. Luke 5.16 tells us that, that he would often slip away in the wilderness to pray. We know from Luke 6 that before choosing his disciples, the 12 men who he would invest his life in, who would be with him, who would one day build the church, these men, before he chose them, he spent all night in prayer. And then in Luke 9, 28, we see that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, he became transfigured and appeared in glorious form. Jesus was a man of prayer. So think about it. For the disciples, it makes sense. They saw that Jesus was dependent on prayer. They saw the power of prayer in Jesus' life. And so the one thing that they knew they needed to have was to know how to pray. And so that's what they sought from him. This is the one time they asked him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Now, I guess that's a nice observation. It's a lovely lesson, and we can end it right there. Except for the fact that God did not give us the scriptures for purely academic reasons. He gave us his word. He gave us his truth so that you and I could make a personal connection to that truth. And so we would know him in greater measure. And so this morning, when we think about what is the connection for us here, it's very obvious. In fact, it's so obvious we tend to miss it. Because here's the deal. If Jesus, the son of God in the flesh, the savior of the world, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God, if Jesus, who was able to heal the sick, restore sight to the blind, feed the thousands, raise people back to life from the dead, the one who walked on water, who had, who had all power. If this Jesus, my Jesus, needed 
prayer and depended on prayer that much, what in the world am I thinking? What in the world am I thinking that I could possibly live a life of obedience, that I could, I could accomplish the things that God's called me to accomplish, that, that I could even survive the hardships and crises and adversities of life with a weak prayer life? What makes me think that I could go forward in my life and, and enjoy what God's created me to be if, if I'm not equally dependent on prayer? This is a, a, a compelling thing. You see, if Jesus was so dependent on prayer, maybe we should be asking ourselves if we value prayer enough to develop a greater dependence on it. So this morning, we want to draw from Luke 11. It's our text and if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke 11. Uh, I know there's some Bibles there on the seats around you if you didn't bring your Bible. And we will um, read Luke 11. Let me ask you to stand at, at the reading of God's Word. Now, our focus passage is Luke 11, 5 through 13. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to actually read the first four verses just to give us some context. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, from the evil one. So Jesus taught them what to pray first. And in this next passage, he begins to unpack the access that we have to the Heavenly Father and how we are called to approach him and engage him in prayer. Verse 5, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. In this passage, Jesus gives us two parables and a promise. So let's begin with the first parable, verses 5 through 8. In this parable, we see that Jesus invites us to approach God shamelessly, boldly, and persistently. Jesus poses an interesting dilemma where he asks his disciples, which of you would have the nerve to go and wake up a friend in the middle of the night to ask for bread? The reason for the request for the three loaves is that you've had an unexpected guest arrive late at night and you don't have any provisions to feed them. 
Now, for us to really understand this parable, we need to do a little education on first century culture. A couple of things we need to know. First of all, the culture held hospitality in high regard. I mean, it was, it was almost a duty. A visitor was to be welcomed and cared for regardless of the hour of the arrival, which actually intensifies this need. The scenario Jesus was laying out really put this person in a tough situation because to not provide food for his guests would be unthinkable in this culture. Second thing we need to know is that, kind of obvious, but food was not readily available like it is today. The bread was baked each day to meet the daily needs of a family. There were no McDonald's drive throughs no Chick-fil-A. It was you had to bake the bread, and you did that at the beginning of the day. And third, we need to understand that most ancient homes only had one room. There was not an entryway in a living area where the bedrooms broke off to the side. These homes were small. And for the most part, most of them were one room. So to approach a neighbor meant risking waking the entire family, not just the friend. So in this parable, the man tries to get his pesky friend to go away because he and his family are already in bed asleep. And it's at this point Jesus drives his point home in verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The ESV translation uses the word impudence. Many other translations use the word persistence. Now, impudence is defined as the quality of being offensively bold. Truth is, the Greek term being translated here is difficult to render in English. It's a blending of a combination of qualities, boldness and shamelessness and persistence, all these things. In other words, this man has the nerve, he has the gall to make such a request so late at night. Jesus is communicating to his disciples, and he is communicating to us today how we are encouraged to approach God in prayer. Not in carefully measured tones, not in cautious, calculated, well-versed, spiritualized dialogue, not in some kind of precise formula. Jesus is instructing his disciples to go directly to God and tell tell him plainly what they need. He's explaining that we're to go before God without shame, that we can go with confidence and boldness, with persistence. Jesus is telling the disciples that they have access to the throne room of God and they don't need seminary training to learn how to pray. You don't wait until the time is right because the time is right now to go to God. Even in his approach, Jesus models this transparency. A couple of interesting passages really highlight this. And the night before Jesus was crucified, before he was arrested, we know he was in the garden. He was praying. And Mark 14, 33, amazing verse, tells us that, he was, that Jesus was in distress, that he was troubled, and his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. Get a hold of that one. And it says he prayed, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Translation. Daddy, you are God. 
and can do all things. Remove this cup from me. Find another way. In Hebrews 5, 7, another lost verse. We are told that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. Jesus was so bold. He was so brash. How bold are you to go before God when you are in need to come and pray without shame, without reserve, because this is the invitation that he has given to us. You know, I've, I, I feel like I've known so many Christians, and I find myself, I've been in this place at different points in my journey, where as, as children of God, somehow we resist going to God because of shame or because of some sin in our lives. That is the very reason why we do go to God. He who removed that shame from us. Sometimes Christians resist going to God because they doubt that their personal problems hold any concern for a distant God. Listen to the invitation, Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's in our need. It's when we are desperate for the mercy of God, when we have no other way. It's in our need that we don't just go to the throne room of God. It says we go with confidence. This is what Jesus is trying to explain and, and give this picture to his disciples of how we approach God shamelessly, boldly, and persistently. Next thing I want us to see in this passage is that Jesus implores us to seek the Father actively and continually. Verses 9 and 10, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Notice the verbs here, ask, seek, and knock. They are in the present imperative tense, which basically means that this, there's this idea of continuance and constancy. In other words, we keep on asking, we keep on seeking, we keep on knocking. Look at each one. Ask. In order to ask, we must be conscious of a need that we have and our inability to meet the needs. So we ask God and come to him in humility. Seek. This requires pursuit. It connects our prayer with action, responsible action in pursuing the will of God. Knock. Knock suggests perseverance. As disciples, we are to persist in prayer, confident that the Father will provide whatever is best because of his sovereign, gracious will. Also, something else we can see in this, that there's a progression of intensity. See this? From simple asking to still more aggressive seeking to still more aggressive knocking. This progression of intensity also suggests that our praying is never intended to be passive. Whatever portion of his will we know we are to do something with. Let me put it another way. Passivity and prayer is an oxymoron. They don't go together. When we think of prayer, we don't think of action. But Jesus is trying to dispel that myth. Prayer is action. You know what we do? This is, I've said this so many times, I'm embarrassed to tell you I've said this. And I've, if I hadn't said it, sometimes I've thought it. You know, you got an issue and something's going on. And you say, well, 
I guess there's nothing, nothing we can do but pray. I guess that's all we got. What are we thinking? In, in the way Jesus is describing this, prayer is the first and foremost thing to do, to seek God. You may have heard about the prayer life of George Mueller. It's documented that Mueller began praying for five of his friends who didn't know the Lord. And so he, he prayed and he prayed without any results. Finally, after five years, the first one received Christ. In 10 years, two more came to faith. But Mueller continued to persevere and pray. After 25 years of intercession, 25 years, the fourth friend received Christ. When the fifth friend came to Christ, George Mueller had died and gone to be with Jesus. 52 years of intercession produced eternal fruit in the lives of five people. That's powerful. And that's a great story. But what about you and me? What do we do with this call to prayer? What do we do with this promise straight from the mouth of Jesus that God answers prayer? Because the truth is, you and I struggle to pray. Right? This is what I've seen. Christians sometimes adopt a mindset that prayer is a good thing, although not necessary. All under a theology that contends for a powerful God but results in a passive faith. After all, God's going to do what God's going to do. It's a legitimate question. Because Jesus tells us in this passage that God is committed to giving us what we need. So why should we pray? After all, isn't God going to meet our needs anyway? What we must understand about the first parable, something really important, is that it is not directed to portraying the friend as God. See, this first parable is focused on the petitioner. He says, which of you who has a friend will go to him? Jesus isn't telling us that we need to pray passionately and persistently so that God will answer our prayers. He is telling us that we are to actively seek God through prayer in faith because he's called us to do it, because it's for our benefit. He is imploring the disciples to pray in faith because of what God wants to do in our hearts, in our lives. We don't pray over and over because God might not have heard us the first time. We pray over and over because it invites us into an intimate relationship with God as we persist and persevere in prayer. I don't know about you, but when I've experienced those moments and seasons in my life when I'm overwhelmed and I find myself in some sort of crisis and I'm heavily burdened, maybe for a loved one, for a friend, I, I, I will seek God with everything within me. Now, I would love to tell you that I always turn to God first. and I'd love to tell you that I usually spend three days fasting and praying about it. But I, I can't say that. I have a tremendous amount of growing to do in prayer myself. Let me tell you something. When I've prayed, when I've cried to God... In fact, I need to chase a rabbit here for just a minute. One of the things that helps me is I talk out loud to God. I do that. It just It's re- more real for me. And so especially when I'm in the car alone, I, I just it's a safe place. So I just, you know, it's a little risky. But, I mean, I talk to God out loud, and I use gestures and all that kind of thing. Several weeks ago, I was at a stoplight, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and there was this woman behind me. And, I mean, she was, like, really animated. And at first I thought, man, she's yelling at her kids in the back seat because she was, like, you know, doing this thing. 
what is going on? And all of a sudden, I looked a little closer and realized she wasn't yelling at her kids. She was singing. She was singing a song. I guess she was trying to get the kids to join in. I don't know. But she was having a good time, and I started cracking up laughing, just watching her. And then the thought occurred to me, occurred to me that, uh, you know, other people might think that about me when I'm talking out loud and there's no one in the car. So the moral of the story is I encourage you to talk to God out loud, but do so at your own risk. But even during these times when I'm crying out to God, when I'm pleading for God to intervene, to act in a difficult situation, whether it's five minutes, whether it's 15 minutes or, or an hour, when I pray, when I carry my burdens to him, do you want to know what's changed about my circumstances? I would say nothing. Maybe a few times God's intervened quickly. But many times, nothing changes about my circumstances. But I want to tell you something is really happening in my soul. God is doing some work in my soul as I cry out to him. He is beginning to steady my mind. He's beginning to calm my heart. I am lifted to a whole new place. God fills me with his joy as he works in me. In the midst of the chaos of my need, of my crisis, this is the work of God as we pray. He works in our hearts. But there's a tension in this passage that we have to talk about. It lies just below the surface because God is calling us to faithful prayer. But interestingly enough, the problem lies in the promise, doesn't it? Isn't that really the problem? These are bold statements. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. What do we do when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to? The way we expect him to? The way we believe he should? What do we do when our prayers have not yet been answered? Brothers and sisters, this is a core issue that we can't skirt around. I've seen too many believers lose their zeal for praying, their joy and their hopefulness, because they've had a great need in their life, and they have prayed, and they have fasted, and they have sought God. But the check never came. The friend wasn't healed. They didn't get the job. The relationship didn't work out. I've seen faithful Christians who have tirelessly interceded for loved ones only to find disappointment and disillusionment when their prayers seem to fade away at the end of a dead-end street of intercession. In many ways, I really believe that every believer and every congregation stands on the edge of falling into a fatalistic mindset when it comes to prayer because of these disappointments. C.S. Lewis once said, every war, every famine or plague, almost every deathbed is a monument to a petition that was not granted. And then we have these promises straight from the mouth of Jesus. Like Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. What do we do with these promises? For some believers they would rather not even be aware of these claims i think truthfully others would prefer to simply ignore them we can't go around it and we don't need to treat the problem with trite answers and i certainly don't have time this morning to address this issue in an exhaustive manner but i want to share a few truths and realities and i think we'll come full circle in this passage to see this we we must be aware as we seek to continue in prayer without losing heart 
When God doesn't answer our prayers the way we expect him to, here's just a few things that have helped me. First of all, know that you're in good company. You know, Joseph sought the Lord. He ended up as a slave in Egypt. The scripture says the Lord was with him, and yet he sat in a prison, forgotten for two years. Moses earnestly entreated the Lord that he might enter the promised land, but God answered no. The apostle Paul repeatedly prayed that his thorn in the flesh would be removed, Yet God, in his wisdom, said no, and instead used it as a point of grace in his life. Know that we're in good company. Secondly, we have to examine the motives of our prayer. James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see, sometimes we pray for things that God actually never promised. Sometimes we pray with self-seeking motives with no thought of God, or we seek to steal some or all a part of God's glory. Sometimes we don't recognize God's answer to our prayers or understand his timing. Sometimes God has answered our prayers and we don't even see it. Remember, the Spirit himself is interceding for us. He understands the deeper intent of our prayers and often responds to the greater need, which in God's way and timing solves a specific prayer problem. And finally, I would say we must accept our limited view in this world and lean on God's faithfulness. I want to share this verse with you. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Listen to this. Hold on to it. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, in this world, our view and perspective will always be partial. It will always be limited. We live under the mystery of the ways of God as if trying to see through dark glass with dim lighting. But in the age to come, when we pass from this life to the next, we will see in full. Just as Jesus told Peter in John 13, 7, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. In the meantime, we must walk by faith and steadfastly trust in the all-wise, all-knowing goodness of God. P.T. Forsyth said, We shall come one day to a heaven where we shall gratefully know that God's great refusals were sometimes the true answer to our truest prayer. I don't know about you, but I look back in my life, and God has been so faithful to answer so many prayers. He's provided financial means. He's He's opened doors. He's restored vision and hope when I've lost it. He's, he's brought health out of sickness. He's met spiritual and emotional needs. He's, he's brought peace out of conflict. I mean, he's done so many things, but I have to be honest with you. This morning, today, I have some heavy burdens in my life. I have some things that I've been praying about for years. I have some people that I've been praying for for years I don't know what God is doing, but I know that God is working. You have burdens too. Things that we're praying about. And God is calling us to persevere in prayer. And in that process, he will do a work in our hearts. And he will answer our prayers because Jesus promised he would. I have to confess, I've kind of wrestled with this passage initially as it relates to these, how to the connection between the, the, the two parables. And then you've got this promise in the middle. I, I, I struggle with that. But 
But this is, this is the connection. There's a reason why this call to ask, seek, and knock is sandwiched between these two parables. Jesus follows up the Lord's Prayer with a parable that calls us to shamelessly, boldly, persistently approach the throne room of God and petition without ceasing our needs and the needs of others. Then he promises the disciples that they will receive what they ask for, that they will find what they're searching for, and that the doors will be open. But Jesus, full of wisdom, knew what would lie before not only these 12, but to all of those of us who would follow him for generations to come. He knew that they would encounter this stumbling block of prayers that are answered the way we expect them to be. And so he gave us another parable. It's beautiful. A parable to help us steadfastly trust in the goodness of God. Verse 11 through 13. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, in the first parable, the focus is on the petitioner and the petitioner's approach to God. But this is real important. In this second parable, Jesus is helping the disciples see prayer from God's vantage point. Our perspective of prayer is usually formed from our position and our life experience. That's how we, you know, we see things from our vantage point. But in this parable, Jesus is helping us try to see the big picture. He's doing something very special. He says, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son. What father among you, if the son asks for a fish instead of a fish, give him a serpent? The answer is obvious, isn't it? No father. Not even the cruelest of fathers is likely to do that. Jesus is saying to the disciples, you're not going to deceive your children by giving them a snake instead of a fish or a scorpion in place of an egg? Of course not. These are your children. You love them. You want to protect them and provide for all their needs. We all have a personal experience with a father. Personally, I have a great, I've had a great blessing of a wonderful earthly father who's loved me and guided me in, in a wonderful ways. I know many of you, that hasn't been the case. Maybe you had less than a pleasant father experience in relationship, maybe even an abusive relationship. For some, your father was absent as you grew up, either physically absent or emotionally absent. But what I want you to set your mind on here is the most ideal father you've ever seen or known of. Picture that father. And you know what? If you've never seen anyone, if you've never seen a good father, I want you to imagine what your perfect father would look like. Just get that in your mind's eye. Loving, generous, warm, caring, protective, provider, Wise counsel, perfect. This is the perfect earthly father. If you could write it up. Jesus is saying, at the end of the day, even the best father you could ever know or ever imagine is not going to hit the mark compared to God. In fact, compared to God, he's saying they're evil. This is a powerful comparison. Jesus teaches us to pray to God as a father in the beginning of this chapter. And in this parable, he's contrasting God as our heavenly father that we come to in prayer with, with our earthly fathers. And in doing so, he's declaring the goodness of God. God is good. 
But the goodness of God is a doctrine that is often skipped over in the church today. When everything in life is working, it's okay to say God's good. We're comfortable. I mean, we can understand it. It's, it's rational thought. But when disaster strikes, when someone gets sick, when people we know, when we love, suffer, when we are overwhelmed with adversity or tragedy, the doctrine of God's goodness is quietly tucked away in the bottom drawer of our theology, isn't it? As Christians, we need to be able to embrace the goodness of God. When David was writing the 27th Psalm, this is what he said. I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The problem is, the problem we have with the goodness of God, it's based on our presupposition that we know, we think we know what is good for us. That's the problem. Now, one of the great blessings in my life is the fact that I have a four-year-old grandson, and he is awesome. And just a word for you parents that are right in the middle of the struggle and the demands and pressures, I have a vision for you. Grandchildren, they're great. They're better than advertised. And my, my four-year-old grandson is the coolest kid ever, and he, it's amazing. This kid can articulate exactly what he wants and what he knows is best for him. And sometimes around dinner time, you know what he is, is absolutely convinced of? He needs a cookie or he needs some ice cream before dinner ever gets there or when dinner gets there. Now, he's a good eater for most of the time, but sometimes he's convinced that that's really what's best for him. And we laugh and we chuckle as parents, as grandparents, because we know these silly four-year-olds, they don't know what they need. We are children of God. We don't always know what we need. But God, our Father, does know what we need. When you pray, your Heavenly Father who is perfect, who loves you more than you love yourself, who loves you more than you can love yourself, this Father who is good and not only compassionate, merciful, and full of grace. Your Father who knows best what is good for you is listening and loving and protecting and providing and guiding. This is the God that we go to in prayer. If that's not good enough, finally, let me just close. Jesus promises us a gift of ultimate value that holds more than we can imagine. He saves the best for the last. Matthew recorded Jesus sharing the same parable, although slightly different, in his Sermon on the Mount. Some of the imagery is different, but in Matthew, Jesus speaks of God giving good gifts. But in Luke's account, when he's in the intimacy of his disciples, he actually tells his disciples what the good gift is. And the good gifts, my friends, is the Holy Spirit. That's the good gift. He is the good gift. Jesus told his disciples It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? Because when Jesus returned to heaven, it opened the way for the Holy Spirit to enter our daily experience 24-7. Some view this as a prophetic promise that was fulfilled in Acts, and certainly that's a part of the preparation process for the disciples getting ready for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But that was only the beginning Just as the Holy Spirit is something that every believer receives from God at the point of conversion, it's only the beginning to the relationship with him. 
The gift and person of the Holy Spirit is designed to grow in value and impact in our lives. He is the presence and power of God in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the helper who takes care of us, who, take, who took care of the disciples. The Holy Spirit is the comforter who soothes your pain and suffering and heartache in this life. The Holy Spirit is the counselor who advises you and directs you in the midst of chaos. The Holy Spirit is the advocate when you are surrounded by opposition. The Holy Spirit is the teacher who will guide you into all truth and bring to remembrance those things when you need them. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our eternal inheritance. That makes Bill Gates' worth seem like child's play. Sometimes we are guilty of making the Holy Spirit so mysterious in our lives that we struggle to grasp the reality of what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? What does that look like on a daily basis? When we experience the freedom and filling of the Holy Spirit, you know what it looks like? It expresses itself when we experience peace even if it's a fleeting moment, we experience that peace in the midst of chaos. The feeling of the Holy Spirit expresses itself when we experience joy in our hearts. That is the Holy Spirit who gives us joy. When we walk out and, and experience the grandeur and the beauty of his creation, that is the Holy Spirit allowing us to take it in. The Holy Spirit expresses itself when we feel love toward others, especially when we feel love, love toward others and they don't return that love. This is the work and gift of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He is the gift that Jesus promised. He is what makes everything meaningful, what makes everything work in our life. He gives us the power. He gives us the sustaining grace. The Holy Spirit is the good gift that he gives to us. And the scripture says, how much more will the Heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The disciples saw with their eyes how much Jesus depended upon prayer. Today, we can see in the scriptures how much Jesus depended on prayer. May the Lord awaken us to the value of prayer, the beauty of prayer, and may he develop in us a deeper dependence on prayer, on God through prayer. That's my prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Jesus is the ultimate example and display of one who sought you, who depended on you. And Lord, if my Jesus, my Lord, needed you that much, that he sought you in prayer so fervently, so fully. Oh, God, what am I thinking? Please give me a vision for praying that, that you have because I want more of you. And, Lord, to those this morning who, who are stuck in life, who are paralyzed with all of the circumstances in their life, I just pray, God, that you would awaken them to this, this great provision of prayer. And Lord, to those this morning who are trying to figure out, who are looking from the outside in to this Jesus and to this gospel, oh Lord, awaken your gospel in them so that they might know that Jesus, the man who depended on prayer, went to a cross to pay the price 
for our sin. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Move us toward yourself through prayer. In Christ's name, amen.